Well, we greet you. It's great to see you this Wednesday evening to gather for our midweek study. It's especially sweet to open up our service singing wonderful lyrics like that and always so helpful when it's to a tune that we're familiar with. There are so many wonderful hymns and songs from the past and certainly the present, and it's good and it's sweet for us to sing together corporately. And then now the opportunity to open up God's word to study its message to study its words tonight. And what will be, we'll say up front, maybe a little bit of an interesting study. Um, if you want to take your Bible, go ahead and on open to the very end to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, the message tonight, if you want to give a title for it. We'll give it this label, Better Than Eden, Better Than Eden, but tonight might have a little bit more of a, a Bible study feel, uh, a pathos to that tonight. We have some ground that we need to cover. There will certainly be sermonic moments, we'll put it that way. I think tonight will be a little bit of a Bible study, a little bit of a journey. In fact, a journey really through the whole Bible. Um, but we're going to start in Revelation chapter 22. But before we open up and look to God's word, why don't we first look to God and ask for his help tonight as we come to study the word he's given. Father, we've sung to you. We now come before your holy and majestic word in the middle of this week. In the month of April of 2023, we look back, we reflect on the lives that you've given us. And Lord, what are our lives compared to this great majestic story? This grand redemptive plan. Going back even before creation. In the mystery and the majesty of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit in perfect love, in the bond of unity, loving and being loved, giving and receiving. And in the mystery beyond our finite fallen minds that you would decree to create all things, that you would set in motion this perfect plan of redemption, that you would speak all things into existence. And make this creature uniquely made in your image, man. Lord, we gather tonight simply thinking of the psalmist when we look out and consider the world, when we look up and see the beautiful night sky, we ask, what, what is man? Who are we, Lord, that you are mindful of us? Who and what are we that you would take thought of us? And that you would send forth your son who would take on human flesh. That he would be made like his brethren in every way except for sin. Why? That he would live the life we are commanded to live but haven't. That he would die the death and take the punishment that we should have received. That he paid for in full. That the Son of God would be laid limp dead in a tomb, yet the third day rise victorious, conquering the great enemies of sin, death, and the devil, to then ascend up to your right hand. And now we find ourselves here this moment, not knowing the length of our lives, but knowing for certain you will return. And with what we're going to see tonight, we know where all things are heading. With whatever's happened this week, we stop, Lord, and we thank you for who you are, for your great unmerited love and grace. So, Lord, help us tonight, even in truths that many of us were so familiar with, that we would see them with new, fresh eyes tonight. And walk away tonight changed into your likeness. 
We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen. Amen. Better than Eden, Revelation chapter 22. Again, we're in the midst of our Bible study, which began all the way back in Genesis, where we've been taking one book of the Bible at a time, trying to give and equip all of us here with an understanding of here's the whole Bible, 66 majestic books all coming together really in one book given by God using human instruments, prophets and the apostles, the Holy Spirit moving and guiding, superintending, guaranteeing then this revelation that God has given. It is from God. It reflects God's character. It is true. It is truth. It is without error. It's to be trusted wholeheartedly. And God, who could have disclosed so many things, so many more things even, has given us this sufficient word, sufficient for life and for godliness, sufficient to help us understand who he is, who we are, the world, and where all things are heading. So we've been on a journey. Then when we came to Revelation, instead of doing this in just one shot, we all recognized there's a lot of details here that we're needing to take some time to try to work through as best and as carefully as we can, acknowledging this is a challenging book. It's, it's uh, genres different, it's apocalyptic literature and imagery, and yet a book heavily saturated with the Old Testament. We're going to see another demonstration of that tonight. Yet as we've worked through this, we're simply having the record of what God, to the apostle John, again, the last living apostle, John likely in his 80s, in his 90s, having walked with the Lord since his teenage years, that now God gives him this vision, the revelation, singular, of what is, of what would take place, and what is to come. We've then been in the last few chapters here really seeing what, what's still to come, what we're still awaiting, there will be the seven-year period of intense tribulation upon the earth, the justification for that. Again, going to the Old Testament, studying the book of Daniel, one of these remaining, really the final week of Daniel's 70 weeks, piecing together the other puzzle pieces of the Bible, this tribulation period where on the earth, intense wrath, intense judgment. Think of the plagues in the book of Exodus on steroids. We've seen that. But then the great good news, long at last, the king, the true king returns. And on this very earth, he will set up and establish his great millennial kingdom. Where he will sit on, the Bible will emphasize, the throne of David. Tying us to this very earth. He sits at God's right hand in heaven now, but he will return to the very realm where the first Adam was to rule and reign and failed, but he, the great, better, last Adam, comes now, returning triumphant as king to reign. And then to think, his people, his followers, will be with him, and we will rule and reign with Christ beneath him. What, what wonder and glory and majesty that will be. And that's not even the best part. Still awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. But again, we saw in Kev Pastor Kevin walked through quite clearly and directly, there is still this great white throne judgment where all unbelievers will be gathered. There they will stand. The books will be opened. This perfect omniscient record of every thought, every desire, every deed done in rebellion against God. God will bring that to light and unbelievers will be judged according to their works and then sent and cast into a punishment that will be eternal. Why? Because the sin that's been committed has been committed against a perfect, holy, infinite God. Again, we see sin in new light when we consider that. That even should give us uh, an added 
zeal and burden for the lost. Again, that we would go to them and be faithful ambassadors for Christ. But then in our study, the last few times, Pastor Carey has been walking us through this scene now at last. After all this judgment, God will then take and, and recreate or renew, depending on how you land in terms of how you understand a few words specifically, that there will be this new heaven and new earth. Keep that in mind, a new heaven and a new earth. I couldn't help but think, again, maybe you've been tracking with some of this along the way. You know, there are some books out there that have been written that sometimes reading the story, you just get a little bit more you know, images in your imagination where you can read things like this and kind of maybe see some of the pieces. Maybe you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia series. We won't do a show of hands here tonight because this is the adult study and we're cessationists. That's a pun. That's a kidding. I mean, we are, but okay, you're awake, you're alert, good. Chronicles of Narnia series where C.S. Lewis, to children and yet to the parents of children, writes this majestic story of this world called, called Narnia and the lion who's the king of Narnia named Aslan and these young children who get access into this world and they live in the world, sort of signifying there's more to this world than what we see and experience just with our, our senses, right? There's a physical world, but there's a spiritual dimension that one day all will be clear and seen. In the last book in that series, we've mentioned it earlier because in the last battle, you get the dramatic scene where there comes across this imposter to Aslan who deceives so many of the people there in Narnia, signifying in that image, again, the, the image of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. And after all of that, you come to the very end of the last battle where Aslan at last takes Narnia and, and remakes it, recreates it. It's a new creation where he reigns. Two of the figures, Edmund and Lucy, perhaps you remember them, describes them looking around, taking it all in, in awe and wonder, and how they are uh, speaking to one another, and they're reminded of Narnia, and they're seeing the sights and the wonders, the hills, the trees, all of it, taking it in, and Edmund is saying, uh, they're, they're just like what we experienced in Narnia. In fact, for a moment, they're, they're sort of confused, wondering, is this, I mean, it looks a lot like Narnia. And then Lucy says, yet they're not like it, they're different. And then another one of the characters, Diggory, if you remember him, how he speaks softly and he says, they're more like the real thing. Catch that? What is he trying to get across there? It's like Narnia, but, but more, greater than even the real thing. It's the real thing, but more and even better. Again, new heaven, new earth. Let's not be confused when we think about heaven, the final ultimate heaven. It is heaven, but there is this new earth. Again, one more image, another similar series, not by Lewis, but by Tolkien. Any Lord of the Rings nerds here tonight, we can go gather in a society later. Obviously, the book is always better than the movie, but the films, Peter Jackson did a wonderful job. You come to the very last, The Return of the King, and it's capturing the final moments in that grand story. And not spoiling it, I'll just simply say some characters are going to depart to this place known as the Grey Havens, where they board boats, they head onto them, and as they sail off into it, it's, it's white and bright and brilliant and glorious. 
kind of signify an eternity? You have that image, and immediately then, the next image you see, if you remember, the camera takes in the greenest of the green foliage, greenest of green plants. And it's as if you get this good picture, bringing them together, a new heaven and what? A new earth. The heavenly and the earthly brought together perfectly. We've been seeing that, but one more time tonight, we want to point out how the end of the Bible, the end of the story, the end of history culminates in this new heavens and new earth, and this new earth where there is this great, grand, new Jerusalem and all of its glory as chapter 21 depicts. That as you look at the details and you trace things, you begin to remember and recognize so much of the imagery, we've heard it and we've seen it before in the Bible. Where? Well, all the way back at the beginning. In fact, I, we're cheating a little bit. You've opened to Revelation 22. Turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. It's as if we're at the end of one thread. We're pulling it. We're going to go to the other end of the thread, really the beginning of the thread in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to grab it, pull on it, and at least with one theme, try to trace it. I mean, a lot could be covered, but, you know, there is a time limit tonight. We'll trace that theme following the thread, coming then to the end in Revelation 22. You've heard again the title, Better Than What? Better Than What? Eden. Better Than Eden? Well, what was Eden? Well, turning back to Genesis chapter 1. The Bible begins with a declaration. It begins with this grand declaration. Not proving, not giving rational evidences, but right off the bat, the grand trumpet sounds, God creates the heavens and the earth. He at the beginning, God and God alone, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, in this great act of creation, he creates, and in chapter 1 of Genesis, as Moses will author this, guided by the Holy Spirit, the Hebrew could not be more clear and emphatic. He speaks, and this occurs. God creates out of nothing, showing off that he is the creator. And he does this in six, yes, literal 24-hour days. In fact, the pattern's given with the first day. God says, let there be light, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning. You know, and we might be tempted to say the first day, which it is, but maybe your translation says one day, as if here is God defining what is a day. The first day, where there's a period where there's light that God calls day, a period of darkness that God calls night, there's one day, the first day, God creates and begins this way. Okay, you're familiar with this. And then the days progress, the days continue, and you walk through the account, and it's as if, what is, what is going on here? Again, Why? For God's glory to be put on display. He speaks, he creates day after day. The, the whole cosmos comes into existence. He makes then this world earth. And progressively, he's making earth more habitable, uh, a, a proper place and domain where creatures can live. 
What kind of creatures? Well, he begins to populate the earth and, and fill it with all kinds of creatures, you know, animals in the field, birds in the sky, fish in the sea, everyone's favorite, creepy crawling insects, the whole gamut, all made by God. Not only that, he also has made this earth uh, with vegetation, bearing vegetables and fruit trees, all you name it, and we say, oh, good, great. In fact, God looks on it, and he declares, after each day, it was good. It was good, it was good, it was good. And then you come to chapter 1, verse 26. A break in the pattern. Why? Well, to heighten something significant that's about to happen. What is that? Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God has this counsel within the Godhead that of all that he has created. And again, we have the benefit today of some of the telescopes in space that are beginning to give us a more and more of a glimpse of this ever grand, great universe. That of all that's out there and all that's on planet earth, one creature God makes and one creature alone. God says, they will be made in our image. That in some way, when you look at this creature, there's some, some sign, some significance, some uh, afterglow, to put it that way, reflecting the God who made them. Made in our image, according to our likeness, And for what reason, for what purpose, let them rule. What language is that? This is kingly language. Let them rule where? Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Translation, all of planet earth, God has made this creature, made in his image, to rule over as his domain. I mean, how many times do we hear this, but, but do we need to stop and just let that sink in for a moment? I mean, the, the, the adventure, the sense of conquest, not just to go and... and have domain over a city or a country. He says, the whole earth. Made in his image for this noble task. Why? To bring God glory. And you think of it this way. God is the ultimate sovereign and ruler in King, capital K. As he makes man in his image, he delegates this authority to man who as the lowercase k rules over earth, cultivating it, caring for it, keeping it, the advances in technology, finding resources, discovering and, and understanding the fabric of the universe. And you begin to think of the sciences and mathematics and all that God has woven in that man has discovered and discovered and, and gained insight to, all as a result over this earth to do that. And God will go further. Verse 27, he made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Note, God the one defining, male and female, he created them. And to them, the task, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. That's what God gives to man. Man, 
who at the beginning, the first man, and we're going to see in chapter 2, the first woman, Adam and Eve, they married, they are to fill and populate the earth and as king and queen. I mean, that's, that's the language here. But not only that, you go into chapter 2, think of man as king. Chapter 2 zeroes in a little bit more on day 6, on the creation of man and woman. And how intimately this God is involved, taking, forming man from the dust of the ground, breathing in him the breath of life. Man becomes a living being. Not only that, he then uh, puts the man to sleep, takes a rib, fashions the woman, wakes the man up. Man sees the first woman. He bursts out in poetry, a love song, and names her Eve. God's order, God's design. Man to be the leader. Man to be uh, here the husband, to be the leader. Woman made to be the husband's helper, to follow him. God's design, he declares this is very good. Side note, all that's going on today, all the discussion about men and women and gender and roles, you name it. We need to make sure that we don't take these truths for granted. We have to make sure our convictions go deep on what God's created design is. Because it's true in truth and it's better and best. But looking more particularly, chapter 2, verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, how many times have you come across those two words? Man's given this task. Adam, the first Adam, the gardener here, the noble gardener, the kingly gardener, and God tasks him, cultivate and keep this garden, which is Eden. Now, lest we think too lowly of this, again, a little bit of uh, Bible study here, remembering the context. When you're studying Genesis as it was first given, Moses writes not just Genesis, but what else? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In a way, here's the whole large context for the book of Exodus, or the book of Genesis, the Pentateuch. The very terms used here later. When the tabernacle is made and the priests are given the task and all their functions with the tabernacle, these two words show up again together as part of what the priests are to do. To cultivate, to keep, to cultivate and guard Because of that, it's really, I, I don't think, a stretch to see these terms here. They're not just gardening terms. They're rather priestly terms. That in fact, Adam, not only is he this kingly figure, he's a priestly figure. Priestly, he's to cultivate and keep this garden and as God has made earth, it's like the whole cosmos is his temple with his glory on display. And Eden is this focal center point where the only creature made in God's image is given this task to care for it, to cultivate, to guard, to protect, all to glorify God. And again, in Eden, we've seen it before. There's this tree of life. Not only that, there's this unique river flowing out of Eden. 
It's the source of these other rivers. In fact, some Bible scholars wonder, since it's the source of a river, is that even signifying that Eden is elevated as if Eden is, is like a mountain and the river at its source flowing down all these other rivers of the earth, then uh, saturating the rest of the world? Who knows? Possibly. Not only that, you get the imagery here of the gold and the bdellium and the onyx stone. Beautiful what it would be like. This chief blessing, as God has made man, as man is this kingly and priestly figure made by God to glorify God as he has domain over the earth. And as he now is married and enjoys the marriage relationship, uh, the two together now as one flesh, we could stop and think, what is the chief blessing, the greatest gift that Adam and Eve enjoy at this moment that they know their creator and are in this close intimate fellowship and communion with their creator communion not in the sense of the ordinance but communion in the sense of fellowship a real relationship of love Receiving love from God, responding to his love with love back to God, fullness of joy, fullness of blessing. Again, we, we don't even know what this would look like, but God manifesting his presence, his glory on display, such as we'll see in a moment, it was the, the norm and the pattern where this creator would walk in fellowship with his creature, or rather the creature would walk in fellowship with his creator. But then chapter 3 happens. By the way, pointing out the attack of Satan is a, a direct uh, flipping and assault on God's created order. Right? There's God, he's made man and woman, man the husband to be the leader, the woman in this marriage relationship, the helper and follower, and them ruling over the animal world. And yet, from the bottom of the animal world, the serpent, does he bring this charge in questioning to Adam? No, he goes to the woman. The woman then, instead of uh, following her husband, her husband follows the woman. And then, then Adam, in the great act of defiance and treason, that we, we sit here tonight and even scratch our heads, how can a perfect creature, untainted by sin, who has the blessing of walking with his creator, doubt God's word, defy God's word, and commit this act of cosmic treason. You know, we just don't know. In fact, I think just there, that is the answer. It's an act that does not make sense. It's totally against what is rational and reasonable. Sin, therefore, is quite irrational. Or as we say to children, uh, sin is stupid. And we mean that in an elementary sense, but also in a very deep philosophical sense tonight. Come to the end of chapter 3. Or, sorry, backing up to chapter 3, verse 8. Again, keeping the theme of our Bible study tonight. Or back up to verse 7. The eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked. They've broken God's law. They're guilty. There's a sense now of shame. They sew fig leaves together and try to cover themselves. Again, a parable of the human race. Sensing something's wrong, sensing that we've uh, done something wrong. We sense the shame. 
and humans try to cover up and deal with it themselves. Verse 8, the Lord God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And as a result of sin now being in the world, condemned fallen sinners, it says the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. You know, Moses in as he wrote this in Hebrew, the terms really, they hid themselves from the face of God. The presence certainly signifying that. The presence meaning God is there, but presence, his face as in the blessing, the joy, the relationship. They hear God is coming, and instead of running to him and walking with him, and again, enjoying the chief blessing as creatures, knowing God, loving God, serving God, that they run and hide from God. A curse is pronounced. You know that. Praise God, a promise is also given, already in motion, that one will come to undo the curse. Then you come to the end of chapter 3. The Lord says, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life. Eat and live forever. So as an act of mercy, God sends mercy and punishment, sends man out of the garden. Out into the world, the wilderness and there set at the entrance to Eden, he stations two cherubim guarding and protecting what? The way to the tree of life. Now from this point on, the rest of the Bible, uh, if you're thinking big categories here, we've walked through creation, we've seen fall. The rest of the Bible is going to tell the story of redemption in the promised seed from the woman, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and all that he does to undo the curse and save people from their sin. Ultimately leading then to consummation. Now there are themes that have surfaced in Genesis here, but one that I'm wanting to point out. Again, what was the chief blessing man and woman had in the garden? They were there with their creator in his presence, before his face. When sin enters in, they run, they hide. The rest of the Bible is going to tell the story of humans in so many ways, whether it be scriptural history or history since, of humans sinning and sensing shame and trying to hide themselves from God's presence. And yet, at the same time, as God begins to redeem and save people, there's this, this change where saved individuals, they recognize the Creator's holy, and yet there's now this, this internal longing, this changed desire, where now they, they want back to be with God. They want to be in his presence. They understand sin's not all that it promises and that God is so infinitely greater. In fact, it, it's, it's a promise and not only that, it's a hope and expectation. Flip over in your Bible to the book of Job. Again, I emphasize this is a Bible study. You've got to be ready to turn to a few passages. You know, you go to the book of Job, and if you study the Bible, while Genesis records the oldest, in fact, the beginning of history, Moses writes the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right as he's about to die and Israel's about to enter into the promised land. 
You come to a book like Job and piecing together some of the data, it's likely Job is the first book of the Bible, the book of the Old Testament that's written, probably during the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's this figure, Job, not to go through the whole story, but you know the tragedy, you know the suffering, you know all that is unleashed upon him. You come to Job 19, though. Again, suffering, children taken from him, a wife who turns against him, friends who turn against him, and give some of the worst human counsel. Oh, let, let us learn from that. That Job, in Job 19, uh, verse 23, cries out with this longing, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. And him, him not knowing anything that's going on, crying out, God, would you take my words and so etch them that they would be permanently remembered? How amazing God, God answered that. We have Job here in front of us. What else does he cry out and say? You know these words. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, what time is that? What era is that? The last as in what we've been walking through in Revelation, right? At the last, this Redeemer, what is he going to do? He will take his stand where? What does it say? On the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. You, do you see what he's saying here? The oldest book of the Bible, Job, not knowing anything going on around him, in some way knows this. There will be a Redeemer who will live. He will come on this earth, standing on the earth, as if bodily. And not only that, that even after Job dies, in some way he will be brought back on the earth as well and shall see God, his eyes shall behold him with his eyes and not another. Think back, what, what did Adam used to do back in the garden? He wasn't just a spirit floating there in Eden, was he? No, God made this creature with body and spirit. And there in the garden, this creature walking with his creator. And though he's been cast out of the garden, at least there's this hope from this believer Job. There's this longing and expectation. There will come a day where I will see him. Him on this earth even. Turn over into Psalm. Oh, and there begins to be this hope, this expectation. Uh, if you want to turn to a few places or just listen, perhaps just listen. Psalm 11, verse 7. The psalmist writes, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. And it says, The upright will behold his face. Will behold his face. Adam hiding from the face and presence of God. And yet, the upright 
the righteous, there's this expectation and promise. They will behold Yahweh's face. Psalm 16. We come to the end. Verse 11. David says, you will make known to me the path of life in your presence. Again, the language and imagery of God's face and being there close to him in God's presence before his face is what? Fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. Psalm 27. Again, this theme from the psalmist longing for verse 4 of chapter 20, uh, Psalm 27. One thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life. To do what? To behold the beauty of the Lord. To meditate in his temple. In fact, even later in the psalm, when God says, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. In fact, there's the command given, Psalm 105, verse 4, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face continually. Now, no doubt the imagery of face in his presence, it's signifying blessing, joy. Yet even back with Job, this expectation that it's not just spiritual, you know, uh, Christianese. There's hope that there will be this fulfillment. You remember as well, the longing of Moses, show me your glory. In fact, God even saying, no man can see my face and live. But he puts him in the cleft of the rock and Moses seeing just the, the backside, the fringes, and hearing the glory of the Lord displayed. Come then to the New Testament, to Matthew. And as, again, God sends forth his son, the true king, who announces and proclaims his kingdom, and in the Sermon on the Mount, starts off, here's the person who will be in my kingdom. Not saying what we must do, but rather what must be done to us. The kind of person whom God saves who will be in his kingdom. You get this amazing promise, Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, what's it say? They will see God. They will see God. Meant to be something that prompts us even to pursue purity and to be serious about holiness, that we might see Him. And to see Him, to know Him, to be in His presence brings blessing and fullness of joy. Now, more could be said, maybe should be said. So much more now of the New Testament fills in a bit more of the details that when someone is saved, the life that they live in the flesh, in this human body, we live, what? By faith. We serve a God, we live for a God, whom we have not yet seen with our physical eyes. But the Bible uses the language of faith. It's as if with our spiritual eyes, we do see him, we love him, and we live for him. In fact, Peter will say, 1 Peter 1.8, though you haven't seen him, you love him. No, you don't see him now with your physical eyes, he's saying, but you believe in him. You have faith in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. That it, by faith we see him, by faith we behold his glory, by faith we live for him, but physically with our eyes not yet obtaining what Job even longs for, what Adam once had but forfeited. 
flip over to 1 John chapter 3. Almost there to Revelation. Again, this isn't something that happens just to any person on the earth. No, someone must be saved, redeemed, reconciled, justified, adopted, and welcomed in to God's family. That when someone is now a believer, they have that longing of the psalmist. They have the hope of Job. They latch onto that beatitude that Jesus gives. They even now, 1 John 3, verse 2, being a child of God, again, John says, now we're children of God, and it hasn't as yet appeared what we will be. But we know that when he appears, who is the he? He's speaking of Jesus. When he appears and returns, it says we will be like him. Why? We will, what does it promise? We will see him, see him as he is. How does that happen? Didn't Moses hear from God? No man can see my face and live. Oh, by means of this great salvation, and even now this Holy Spirit who's working inside of us and is growing us and changing us, and even the language of metamorphosis, we're being transformed from one level of glory to the next, made into the likeness of this Savior, that then when He returns, then when we see Him in an instant, we're changed transformed, totally glorified, and as glorified, we will see him just as he is. Who is he as he is? Is it the Jesus in the gospel record? Yes, at least in one very clear place. Where for a brief moment, the veil was pulled back. And just a few gathered were able to in some way, behold in brilliant brightness who this Jesus really is in all of his glory. Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? That's, that's who he is. In his first coming, he was veiled. He came in the form of a servant, but when he returns and we see him as king, we'll see him in all of his glory. By the way, can I simply just pause and ask you, do you long for that? The Savior that you hear of week after week, the Savior that you read of in the Bible, the Savior that we take time to pray to, the Savior that we sing to, the Savior that we look on our life and we think, why me? Why would he forgive me? Why would he welcome me into his family? That there's coming a day when you will see him. Well, there's more in the story, and I, yes, more details in terms of what is to come, but going back to Revelation 22, especially remembering the way the Bible begins. We've seen the first things, now we're going to land seeing the last things. And indeed, we've, we've seen this glorious display of what this new heaven and new earth will be like. Where it's declared the tabernacle of God is among men. Chapter 21, verse 3, he will dwell among them and they will be his people and God will be among them. Again, no, no more sin. No more barrier. No more broken fellowship. No more ruined relationship. No more the pattern of the first man and woman running and hiding from God in his face and presence. No, no. God and God even the one who initiates all of this making this way where this creature, a creature of the dust, you and I, 
redeemed will be there with him, God, his glory dwelling among them. And this God, he himself wiping away every tear from their eyes. No longer any death, no longer mourning, no longer crying. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more suffering. And you say, oh, that's great. I long for that. But there's something yet better. Chapter 22. He showed me a river of the water of life. Remember hearing about a river back in Genesis 2? Friend, the imagery here, this is like Eden, but better. Clear as crystal. Even in a visual way signifying here is living water. Coming from God himself. The throne of God and of the Lamb. On either side of the river was what? The tree of life. Do you remember hearing about the tree of life? Where was that tree? Oh, back in Eden. It shows up now again. Are there cherubim guarding the way to get to this tree? Not any longer. They bear 12 kinds of fruit. They yield fruit every month. The leaves here are for the healing of the nations. Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. Do you remember hearing about a curse? Where did that, where was that pronounced? Back in where? Eden. Genesis chapter 3, now no more. Now no longer. It says the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His bond servants, his slaves will serve him. And what is held out before us? Verse 4. They will see his face. What was enjoyed in Eden, but oh, now so much better. In fact, so much better because who is it that is beheld here? Certainly, at least the God-man, who because of what all has happened since the beginning of Eden, now there forever in eternity, we will look upon God the Son in a glorified, perfected human body A God-man seeing this human body in all of its glory and yet beholding and seeing this God-man. Even to look and to see the places where there are still the man-made scars there in heaven. And yet we'll see him. We have access to him. Again, even to think of all before in the Bible, back even in the Old Testament, access is limited to God. I mean, Adam and Eve are sent immediately out of God's presence. There's not access to him directly anymore. In fact, God is the one who gives the terms upon which he can be approached. And for how much of the Bible with the nation of Israel who was all wrapped in that ceremonial worship, the tabernacle and the temple, and even with the tabernacle, with that very special place, the Holy of Holies. Does everyone get to waltz in into the presence of God? Does every person at any time have access to go there into God's presence, whatever manifestation that glory was displayed? No. Who got to go there? High priest, how often? Once a year. Did he get to spend the whole day in there? No. In fact, in that place, there's not even furniture to sit. 
signifying you can have access, but you're not to be in here permanently, at least not yet. But here, how long is heaven? Forever. Beholding the God-man, beholding our Savior face-to-face with Job, seeing our Redeemer in this new heaven and new earth, this Eden-like place, so better, which can't be lost or forfeited. And not only that, you take man as he was first made, now totally glorified, thinking the way God has made us. He's given us minds. He's given us a heart with affections. He's given us a will where we serve him and we choose and we act and we do. All of that now totally perfectly centered upon the proper object God and think as well again we're teasing this out here we will still be finite in heaven right we will always be creatures glorified creatures but still creatures the creator's infinite as we see him we'll learn of him will worship him. And yet because he's infinite, we will for all of eternity continue to learn more about him, grow in our understanding of him and his greatness, and our understanding, us being enlightened, how that's going to stir these perfect affections Hoping in him, trusting in him, loving him, finding joy and satisfaction and chief fulfillment in him. Always growing in this. In fact, even he continually disclosing, revealing who he is. And yet because he's infinite and because we will be finite, we'll never exhaust him. We'll never come to the end of learning of this great subject. For all of eternity, we will continue to see him and behold him and know of him. And not only that, it says our name, his name will be on our foreheads. Signifying identity, but perhaps more than that. back as you read in the book of Exodus as it speaks of the high priest as he's going to go into the place where God's presence is he would put on his special attire including this headpiece that would have the name of Yahweh on it this here's priestly language glorified humans saved in heaven priest-like and not only that there will no longer be any night they won't have any need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will what's it say? reign what type of language is that? royal kingly they will reign forever and ever that was part of God's design for creatures for humans at the very beginning right and now totally glorified in heaven in a perfect paradise Eden but infinitely better that can never be lost never cast out, never sensing shame, never hiding from this God, there in this new heaven and new earth, still made in his image, but we will serve him and reign forever and ever. I mean, the best is absolutely yet to come. And yet this story, oh, how it's so, so much better and greater than what we can even imagine or think. You think of your own experience, how, how many stories that we come across? Books, 
games, movies, shows, you name it. Maybe it's gripping, maybe it's good, but inevitably there will be some point in the plot where it doesn't hold up, it's not what we expected, and how so often you come to the very last episode, the very last moments, the story ends, you look at the person next to you, and you think, that, that's it? Not with this story. Oh, it will be far better than even what we read of here in the pages of Scripture. And what we've seen tonight, the chief joy, the chief blessing, the chief gift is that we will see his face. Put simply, what makes heaven heaven is that God is there. Is that what you long for? In fact, it'd do well for all of us to hear words from one pastor who thought through this and posed this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasure you ever tasted, no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Father, we come to the end of our study tonight. Amazed at this great story, the greatest story ever told. You, the author, you, the producer, you, the director, you, the star. You, the one guaranteeing that it will come to this great ultimate end. We're part of this story. We're here on this earth. Help us tonight, Lord, to reset in our priorities. That as we even think and contemplate the glories of this new heaven and new earth. To come back to this great gift that we will see you. And see your face. God may that stir us up. That's held out to us now in this life. That's even motivation for us to continue to seek you to taste and see that you are good and how blessed is the one who takes refuge in you. God, help us. We know we do this now by faith and often our faith is weak. Strengthen our faith. And yet we long for the day when you will return, when the books will be closed, when we then will be in this place with you forever. Until then, help us to live for your glory and the present lives that we have. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen.